welcome to episode 61 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined once again by Chris Waldman. What up, dog? How you doing? Good. It's uh, It's been a while since we've actually had you on the show, isn't it? It's been a hot minute. There's been mm. sheds and editions and all kinds of exciting things going on in lives. Mm, including exciting transitions to YouTube, because I think this will be the first time we've had you on an episode that is now up on YouTube for people to actually go find. Yes, exactly. Um, and be glad you can't see my face, because it's not something people want to see. <laughs> well, you say that, there'll probably be a picture of your face up on screen now for anyone uh, viewing. So make it a good one, Chris. Send me a good picture for you, to you, for me to use. airbrush the snot out of it, no problem. <laughs> um... So yeah, so uh, for people who might be finding us for the first time on YouTube, Chris, do you just want to tell people quickly about Unrelenting Brush? Sure. So my name's Chris. I run the Unrelenting Brush social media page and commission painting service based in Derby, England. Uh, you can find me at theunrelentingbrush.co.uk, on Facebook at The Unrelenting Brush, and on Instagram at the underscore unrelenting underscore brush, and YouTube by shock and applause, The Unrelenting Brush. <laughs> and of... Uh occasional uh, walk-on uh, fame as well, as you have appeared in a couple of their different um, community painting articles now, haven't you? Yes, I have, which is always really nice and flattering to see. Um, it's I, I keep telling people I have no right being as fat as I am when I'm so busy. How I have time to eat when I should be painting is remarkable. <laughs> well, funnily enough, you're not the uh, the only person on the show tonight who has also appeared on Warcom in many, uh, many articles because uh, our guest tonight is also another prolific painter, a connoisseur of contrast, and an all-round fan of all Stormcast Eternals converted into Space Marines. It's Josh the War Hipster. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm shocked that you would... <laughs> That you would do me that way. Absolutely shooketh. <laughs> Stormcast into Space Marines. Honestly. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> let's let's not start this beautiful relationship off on a bad note. <laughs> oh, I thought you loved your Space Marine chapters with Azerite ruins all over their iconography. Yeah, sure, why not? Let's, let's just go for it, shall we? It's I mean it's not lore accurate. On the narrative war gamer <laughs> podcast, but that was fine. It's all good. Uh, I mean, it's funny how like you'd think that on the narrative war gamer podcast, where I've got a pair of very well-renowned community painters who are both exceptional examples of, you know, sort of hobby and um, excellence and just an all-round great time for what it is to be. A yeah, you can you can bring hobby. that down a notch. Thank you very much, Sunshine. We don't take <laughs> praise in the unrelenting shed. <laughs> well, I've got you here to talk about tournaments. Painting tournaments. <laughs> um, well, like I say, it's, it seems like the natural fit that obviously we're going to talk about 40 gear tournaments tonight. <laughs> but there's a good... That does feel natural. I'm, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> I have many opinions, so we can share. It's them. the enthusiasm that's coming through, Josh. That's getting me all tantalised. <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically, uh, tonight is going to be an interesting little discussion because um, it's fair to say that on you know the narrative wargamer podcast, we don't typically talk about um, the competitive events um, that go around. Um, 
these days in 10th edition because that's just generally not our bag. <laughs> you know, we, we enjoy a good event. We, we enjoy the opportunity to go and uh, play lots of games of Warhammer and meet people and have a wonderful time. Um, but it's fair to say that um, the sort of standard 40k tournament has a... Uh, it lacks a few appealing qualities to uh, most of us, and uh, we thought it'd be interesting to say, well, what would we change? You know, how could we make some of these um, more standardized 40k tournaments a little more interesting and exciting? So, uh, yeah, we've got a few ideas that we're going to talk about later in the show. But before we get into that, I'll, I'll apologize to uh, doing Josh dirty like that and give him a chance to uh, tell us a little bit about who he is and what he does for those who somehow might not have heard of War Hipster and uh, what he does. Uh, where can people find you, Josh? Uh, you can find me in all of the light places of the internet and none of the dark. Um, <laughs> so you can That's find... ominous. <laughs> well, I have to preface that because, you know, YouTube, whilst being a very public forum, is quite dark at times. But uh, you can find me on YouTube at, uh, at war- youtube.com forward slash warhipster. You can find me on Instagram at instagram.com forward slash warhipster uh, and you can e- email me I guess at the real warhipster at gmail.com you know I'm not if on Twitter to. yeah if you have to you can email me there uh, if there's something really important like you know I've missed a bill or something <laughs> um, but like uh, you know um, yeah I'm not I'm not on Twitter uh, I am on Facebook but not really yeah, I'm just kind of I'm just kind of bimbling around making contrast painting videos. Um, <laughs> just just a couple, I guess. Yeah. How how yeah, many are you up to now? Oh God, uh, well, I do two a week uh, as Disgusting. a minimum. Um, <laughs> it is because uh, it's an obnoxious <laughs> it's an obnoxious amount of work, and I don't know why I continue <laughs> to stick to it. Um, I have done 727 videos. Is that it? <laughs> yeah. Just a I couple. think I've done 17. <laughs> Get out of that one, Rommel. Wait, but are you on like 100,000 subscribers? Because that will really make me cry. If you I'm know. on 500. 500? 1,000? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not on 500,000. Not even close. Um... <laughs> It's fine. We're all scions of the internet and social media here. Exactly. We um, are. And uh, yeah, it's I mean, <clears throat> it's fair to say that, you know, we're all um, constantly in the uh, the social media circle, aren't we, at this point now with the hobby? It's impossible to to go anywhere without seeing um, various opinions on Skatari with stilts and similar. Well, I have to be because it's my job. <laughs> I can't not be in the social media because if I didn't, I wouldn't eat. And I like <laughs> to eat. Yeah, very similar boat for me. I say to everybody, if it wasn't for work, I wouldn't be on the social nonsense. I'd go full John Connor, but like Josh, the dogs need feeding, the bills need paying. So, Yeah, I did think about that the other day. Like, if, I, if I'd never made that step, where would I be? Mm. Where would, I, would I have given a monkeys? Because like, I just, I started... It's 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 so telling, isn't it? You 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 you're on Instagram. I had I had an Instagram because everybody else had an Instagram, and I mean not Warhammer, but I mean everybody else had an Instagram. So occasionally yeah. people would upload photos of us on a night out, and I would be like, oh yeah, well I'd like to see those. So I have a I had an Instagram account, um, and then I was just I'd moved house 
and I was at home and uh, I was like, oh, do you know what? I'll just I'll just post. I don't know if anybody does this, but I'll just post a photo of some Warhammer that I've just painted. Uh, and I think it was like Cypher or something when that model came out um, yeah. as part of the triumvirate of the Primark. And I was just post, post that photo and I was like, this has got more likes than anything I've ever done before. I'm going to keep doing this. Here we are. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> quite a few years later. And it turned out I wasn't the only one doing it. I didn't think I, I, I wasn't the first person to have an original idea. So that was hard to take. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean other people do this? <laughs> well, I was like, I come into it thinking like it was still like, um, like it was when I was a kid. It's like I, in my in my school year, there was I think there was about 150 of us, um, something like that, and there were like five kids that did Warhammer. Um, mm. So I was like, if that proportion is still right, chances are <laughs> there's only like. 100,000 people in the world who know what this thing is. Uh, no, I was completely completely wrong, of course, on that front. And of course, it's changed so much in that time anyway, since Triumvirate as a Primarchy anyway, um, in terms of the amount of people that are now involved. And there's also have that kind of, um, mm. what would you say, spotlight of social media. Because now everyone every, everyone is on it. It's, it's, like the, it's like if you go into Games Workshop and you're like, they're like, hey, what are you here for? Oh, I'm thinking of getting started. Cool. You'll need a core box and an Instagram account. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you can, so you can see what everyone else is doing and get really sad because everyone else is better than you. Um, and so then you strive to get much better than that person and, and then and so on and so forth. It's like, the, it's like, it's like the war of escalation out there on social media these days. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing to see it. Like, but then that makes me sound like a really grumpy old man. Not once. Not even once. <laughs> I mean, it's true how these days now, I often find that when something is like a new reveal from Games Workshop and you be like, look at, you know, um, wow, this new model looks awesome or amazing or whatever. These days now, I tend to be more excited to then see what people in the community then do with it. You like once people get their hands on it and start using it in conversions or dioramas or just taking paint schemes that are doing weird and wonderful things with them. I'm yeah. often interested to see that. Like right now, recently, Games Workshop revealed the new Necron Lord of Translocation cloak, and as a sculpt oh, yeah. and the concept, you know, like that the use of negative space in it is brilliant and great, and I'm I think it's a brilliant model. But I'm also really interested to see what people actually start doing with it once they get their hands on it. Because I think there's going to be some spectacular like paint schemes and things done with those um, like translocation um, arcs and stuff that are like, floating around him. I like the idea of somebody being like a, like a veteran from previous editions up to 7th being like, at last, a model where I can, I can actually model a deep strike mishap <laughs> yes. <laughs> just um, just take a piece of uh, scenery and just like jam it in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we never had that, but you know that would be fun to see. 
So you have to work out what other model in the Games Workshop range, by pure coincidence, perfectly fits the negative space of that model. <laughs> Just build it yeah. into a piece of scenery either side of a wall, and I'm going, help, I have displaced myself. <laughs> I rolled a four on the scatter dice inch. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, so speaking uh, briefly about like new reveals and stuff. At time of recording, this is just after the um, the re- latest reveals at the is it the World Championships that's been going yeah, on this weekend somewhere. Better. Yeah, uh, and there's been some interesting <laughs> some interesting new reveals there as well. I mean, they've uh, they've completed the set of uh, Necron reveals for their new codex with um, Oricon the Diviner. Um, getting his latest uh, new sculpt, um, which is uh, interesting because I think uh, I think perhaps Oricon is the first example of the evolution of an existing Necron character into a new one, where it actually feels like there's some semblance of change to him, not just re-sculpted with modern techniques, but like he's actually a little bit different yeah. than there. Yeah, I see that. I think the Immotech's a great new model, but again, it's quite safe to the original. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but yeah, I see what you mean about Oricon having that slight kind of more of a refresh. Mm. I think since they originally sculpted him, um, they've had they've determined a little bit more what the identity of a Cryptech is, and now they've yes. taken those concepts and put them into um, the new Oricon sculpts. Like, I think before he was um, just slightly perched on a hero rock of his like his tail wrapped around his staff, whereas now he's doing the whole floating off the ground cryptech thing, and he's got this whole like longer segmented carapace on his back that some of them have. Um, so I think I think he's an interesting new evolution of the concept of what it is to be a cryptech. Yeah, he's fine. <laughs> is, For every uh, opinion, you will not need. you know it's 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 like um it's at this point where like with the with the character redos they are they are they're good and they're great and it does mean that they're slowly eradicating um the sort of the resin options from their main range um which i'm absolutely in favor of 100 percent um I just feel like uh, 40k 40k is a little bit stuck um, keying off nostalgia at the moment, mm. and it's the same problem that like um, that, that like Hollywood and that is going through, and that they're like rather than do anything new, let's just reboot or re- or con- or build franchises, right? Um, because it's it's safe, easy, easy and safe and easy to do. Um, because there's no risk involved and I feel like having Orican and Imotech get redesigns is a little bit like that and it's like it's fine it doesn't necessarily get my engine burning though (laughs) well how do you feel then about the new Asmodai model because I feel like he is a bit more of an example of an evolution sculpt wise but he's also following this trend of he's actually basically mimicking um, some very classic artwork of him. 
So in yeah. that sense, it's it's calling back to a you know like a nostalgia um, aspect of his character. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it. The problem I have with the Asmodee model again, not not any comment on the model itself. The model itself is absolutely fine um, and totally warranted. It's just you could have killed him and done someone else. <laughs> yeah, Do you know what I mean, like just just inject some new blood into like it's because the joke I always see on the internet is and you know they've they've. It, it was a concept that they've introduced and now they've kind of quietly moved away from it, but this idea of the Primaris versus the Firstborn, right, and that crossing the Rubicon Primaris is a very dangerous thing to do, except we have a 100% success rate in every <laughs> single character so far. So it's yeah. like, is, is it really that dangerous? And it's like, you don't want to hold up Games Workshop's design of models to the standard of some throwaway line in, in a piece of literature that they've written because ultimately the two don't impact the other but at the same time it's nice, it, the idea for me is it would be nice for someone like a character like Asmodee to actually not survive that process and they go, oh well, here's a new high chaplain called Super Angel Man and then we can just Keith. do yeah, Keith, Keith the high chaplain of the Dark Angels Chief interrogator, and um, then they don't have to stick to things like artwork or predetermined mm. design principles. They can do something a little bit different. I mean, they did. I feel like with Space Marines in particular, they did briefly sort of like touch on this idea that you're describing with um, the Imperial Fists and the Salamanders, because rather than simply redoing or updating Lysander and Vulcan Heston. They instead gave us Targaradon and um, Ag um, Agrax. Agra yeah, Agrax. It's not Agrax, but it's something, like, it's yeah. something suspiciously yeah. like Agrax. <laughs> it's it's Adrax. It's, it's, Adrax, it's legally, thank you very much. It's, it's legally distinct. <laughs> From but, their own IP. <laughs> yeah, but I know what you mean. Like, So like with them, rather than having like... Lysander be your huge Terminator with Thunderhammer Storm Shield. Instead, you got Tor Garadon, who was a Grievous Captain special character with like a shoulder-mounted grav gun and a, and a stonking big power fist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I liked that a lot. And like yeah. Tor Garadon wasn't a complete, you know, wasn't a complete stranger. He was in um, Fall of Cadia. Um, yes, he was. He was the uh, he was the idiot that thought the only way to deal with the situation was to blow up the phalanx with its own guns. Um. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, it saved Cadia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nothing bad happened at Cadia, um, and so well, it's, on. And so it's forth. interesting because I I completely agree that they could do with. There's nothing wrong with killing off some of the old guard and getting new guys in. The issue is is that they then have to manage expectation of. People who don't mind are people who do mind. So Yarrick was a good example, because there are people out there who refuse to believe that he's actually dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Including Despite the big spread in the codex with his skull. Uh, I'm not saying he won't come back, because I dare say he will. Will I be happy? Sure. I like Yarrick as a character. But uh, I wouldn't want anything to get in the way of progressing the story at a pace that I think is acceptable. Well, and then, and then it's kind of... 
then you're going to get into the realms of, and I've had this discussion at great length with many a people, of why did Commissar Yarrick get retired? And yet the Blood Angels Codex, to this day, still includes Captain Tycho. <laughs> the whole Tycho debate. Even the <laughs> Index, the Index in 10th, got a Tycho entry. But but Yarrick died? So if you're I mean, if it's like... But if it's okay to kill the mortals, are we just saying that space marines are immortal, destruct, indestructible <laughs> superheroes that can't, that can never die? Even the ones where there are books which we've read where the person died. And then there's Dante. Please just let it stop. I've had enough. Exactly. I mean, like, so I I do think that. Um... The Blood Angels are an interesting example in particular because one thing I am an advocate of is if it's not killing the characters, I think it would be interesting to see character development. And again, seen very small, minor examples of it with things like um, Kevin Shrike going from being captain of the Third Company to being chapter master of the Raven Guard. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, being Gerard Way. Yeah, so in the case of the Blood Angels, I've mentioned it before on the podcast, I think what would be really good to do would actually be to have... Um, Chaplain Lamartes actually have him overcome the Black Rage eventually and have him become the second Blood Angel to overcome it and then have Astaroth the Grim fall to the Black Rage and because you can have Astaroth switch places so they switch places yeah Um, and um, Lamartes becomes the new uh, Master of Sanctity while Astaroth is busy raging away (laughs) um, and frothing at the mouth losing his goddamn mind yeah, and sculpt-wise, it would give you an opportunity to um, do basically a model of Astraf that's like the opposed, opposite dynamic of the Sanguinor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, because what you could do, and this would be their get-out clause for their explanation on the Rubicon, you could say that Astaroth, uh died in the, crossing the Rubicon, or was going to, and the only thing that saved him was falling to the Rage. So, like, the procedure yeah. didn't go well for him, and it triggered the Black Rage. Yeah, the I most like important that. thing about any Space Marine crossing the Rubicon Primaris is, when are we going to get Redemptor Dreadnought Bjorn? That's all I want. I'm a simple man <laughs> with simple needs. I don't ask for much. Well, and that, and that, and that, that, is, a, that is an excellent, excellent point of it's like, if you're going to do this, can you do the cool ones? Like, yeah. Even though, yeah. even though, like Logan Grimnar is a is a very divisive model, I would like to see the Logan Grimnar version of of what they can do now in terms of the way they sculpt. Mm. For sure, but again, yeah. that then solidifies what you were saying about how dangerous crossing the Rubicon Primaris is. Here's half a Space Marine who's over ten thousand years old that's been locked in a sarcophagus with no arms or legs. Let's put him through it. Well, yeah, well, let's put him in a Redemptor, which we said previously in the book burns out its host really quickly. But then, you know, let's yep. just put this guy in it for no reason. Okay, cool. Yeah, they can justify it lawwise just by going beyond an absolute lad. Yeah, well, exactly. I'll have that as a paragraph in the book, done. You could even have it written as. Um... <laughs> you could even have it written as Bjorn demands that they put him in one. Um, like, he, he, pulls, he pulls rank on them. He's like, you say that thing's going to actually kill me? Put me in it, please. Because... <laughs> you can tie it into his lore as well, because when he lost his arm, he was leaving the apothecaries, and feel free to comment, anyone who 
thinks I've got this wrong because I probably have. But when he's lost his arm and he's leaving the apothecaries, there's a claw on the wall. He's like, I'm having that. And they're like, no, please don't take that. It's an artifact. Nope, I'm having it. Puts it on his arm. So again, Dreadnought <laughs> Beyond walking through the, the Hall of Ancients going, what's that? A Redemptor. Stickers in one of them, please, lads. <laughs> I want it? a new pair of trousers. I've been sat in these ones for many, many years. Isn't it? The smell's <laughs> getting a bit much. Put me in a new one. I mean... Anyway, that's my how... interesting contribution to the law. Well, yeah, like the the, the the other point with the Space Wolves, that, again, I've, I've mentioned once or twice before, is I do think Grimnar is actually one of the best options available for a character who actually has a heroic death and actually stays dead. Because... Yeah, then Ragnar you... can take over Carney. Well, yeah, because you've got both his... Uh, you've got essentially his senior in Bjorn and his successor in Ragnar. So... You can have Ragnar become the new chapter master, but just because um, uh, Grimnar's dead doesn't mean that actually the chapter is missing its most senior member. Yeah, you, you, you've still got Bjorn as being the like you know the the ancients that they go to when they need to you know consult the knowledge of ages past sort of thing. Mister, um, I remember when. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's just some of my ideas about. Right, so there's the next law for the next codex done, lads. We'll get it sent off immediately. <laughs> get that written up. Uh, um, and then yeah, so go on then, Josh. Tell us what was your favourite picks then from the the recent reveals. Uh, it's a tie between Bone Daddy and Vampire Daddy. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a theme. Uh, yeah, I mean, those those models, uh, yeah, the the Usharan and um, uh, the I can't remember what it's called. It's a Tomb King, right? Is the Bone Dragon? The it's, it's yeah, it's a tomb, tomb King Bone Dragon, isn't it? Yeah, um, both of those were just those are just unbelievable. Um, I think those are are excellent, 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 excellent models. Um, just, just from you know the way they just represent all that's great and good about Games Workshop's uh, design philosophy when it comes to models. Um, I really like how uh, the old world stuff that we have seen that is new um, still feels very, very old world. Um, whilst clearly, I mean, I think the Bretonians one. It's very obvious that. You know the Pegasus Lord um, hmm. is leagues ahead of the Pegasus Knights that they're <laughs> keeping from the uh, from the old style. Um, but that just says to me, like, look, we're releasing with this because we can't drop two hundred new model kits at once. Um, so we're going to do sort of maybe ten across these two factions and keep these old things. But this is the end for these things um, because. It does look a bit. I think it will look a bit silly when you have these gorgeous new Pegasus heroes being attached, probably, to the old Pegasus knights. It'll just be a <laughs> bit like <laughs> that. Doesn't quite make sense. But the the compliment I will give them is that the models look very distinct from Age of Sigma, and they look yeah. very much the old world. And I think Bretonia was always going to be a really hard one to do that with. Because they are just Renaissance French knights. Um, yeah, they they don't have the sort of high fantasy, you know, craziness that 
the Age of Sigma stuff has, or that even elements of the old world had. You know, they they yep. were no dragon they were no dragon ogres, were they? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Because one of the theories for one of the reasons that the Bretonians got dropped was they were too historically accurate to real world stuff in exchange for Age of Sigmar's high fantasy. So yeah, I think that harkens very much to what you're saying, Tony, about it being that subtle but welcome throwback to Bretonians being peasants and knights. Yeah. They also just, at the time, and you, you can see, you see it when you look at the um, the stuff that's coming back. When you look at those models and you say do those fit into Age of Sigma? No, absolutely do not. Um, <laughs> they, they, they would look awful in an Age of Sigma game. And I think we can all be grown-ups and admit that now, um, rather than just being cross that they got cancelled. Because they're back now, so it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think, honestly, I think the same is true of the Empire State Troops. Like, the State Troopsmen, next to what is now, you know, the, um, the Cities of Sigma... Um, range, yeah. like you can see the difference between, you know, those model ranges, and yeah, one looks comparatively now like just a historical miniature <laughs> compared yeah. to, you know, the gunner in the backpack of the ogre. <laughs> yeah, on the back of yeah. <laughs> No, I hundred percent agree. Um, and yeah, I'd like, and it has to be said that yeah, you know, um. Usharan as well looks just amazing. I think that that is one of the first models in a long time that I've seen that is just from Age of Sigma that has just blown me away to the point where I'm like, I do wish some of the 40k models were as good as this, <laughs> that they had as much free reign to just do you know fun and exciting and unique things with them as they do now with these. I mean, the whole flesh eater court range is brilliant you know the whole new all the new character models that are coming out for it are just so clever and brilliant looking and i even love like the law behind them and everything you know um and yeah to see to see usher on um the mad king now you know one of the original vampire lords from the old world as he now is in the mortal realms it's just brilliant <laughs> everything about him it just looks so good it's funny you say that about the disparity of models between AOS and 40k. Like, Flesh Eater Courts are a great example of that. They saved what they saved for the preview, but on the Monday before, you know when they do their m- m- Miniature Monday reveal? Mm. <laughs> they just went, oh, do you know what? We'll just throw out um, Justice Gourmet. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Oh, the dude with the intestine wig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what a guy. that guy was just a throwaway. We'll post about this on a Monday. We won't build up to this at all. It was just like, what have we got that we can throw out? Oh, let's just throw that out. That'll be fine. And I think it's probably one of the most sensational miniatures, according to the the social media at the time on Monday and Tuesday. I saw nothing but people posting, "Oh my god, when and how do I get this?" Um, and it's just like, guys, if 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 a throwaway reveal. From the Flesh Eater Courts is that widely loved. It's like the crab. Remember the crab? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's just like people are just like, hey, look, this Justice Gourmet, the, the Flesh Eater Courts, it's amazing. Uh, and it's like, if, if, if that is getting people's engines revving way more than 
Imatech the Stormlord, then it means that you need to <laughs> you need to you need to you need to change what you're doing in the 40k space, I think. Uh, so I'm very much of the agreement of you, Tony. Uh, I think one range is at the minute in terms of new releases vastly superior in terms of quality, concept, originality, even the lore behind the new models for Age of Sigmar is absolutely mad. Uh, it's interesting to see the reaction of it go so high when, you know, eight years ago Age of Sigmar was getting canned for it being what was deemed a loose throwaway kind of cheap farewell to fantasy. And it's really, really amazing to see how far it's come along as someone who's played the game since day dot. Mm. I would love to see that with 40k. I would love to people to have the same reaction. But even the spin-off games like Warcry for Age of Sigmar, there is not a bad warband or model in that range. They are all beautifully original, fun to paint, really, really interesting concepts. So, yeah, I think there's a lot the studios over there can learn from each other. Yeah, I mean, so I'm in the position where I'm currently working on my Demon Army for 40k, and I am waiting for the day that that Sadeshi warband comes out as an individual band, and I can have yeah. to buy the box set to get it. Because I just want to get those free Sadeshi demons to use as my like heralds in my 40k. Yeah. Army. Oh, the Thricefold Discord. Yeah, because they are gorgeous-looking Sadeshi demon models. Yeah, and just have them as um, I think it's like Bliss Seekers and um, Torment Givers and whatever else the titles are these days for basically Herald of Sadeshi. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah, like. Just to have those instead of just a bigger demonette with bigger hair and a bigger claw. It's actually yeah. something that looks like a character model to lead them. And um, I, I'm really hoping that the demon range is one of these ones that lets us sort of sneak some of these really nice Age of Sigma models <laughs> into the 40k range. Because I don't know about you, Josh, because I know you also have your own demon armies and you, you enjoyed playing with them in 9th edition. Um, were you disappointed or not that when the 9th edition codex rolled around, it didn't include either the Pervain of Sunesh, the um, Turian piece um, that mm. they have in the Head of Knights, or the named character Sisters, keep, the Keeper of Secrets? Oh, Seleski uh, and... No, not Seleski, that one's already in. Dexessa and Sinessa. Yeah, um, because that's an example of... I saw that model released in the Head of Knights range in Age of Sigma, and I was like, I cannot wait for that to get its equivalent 40k rules so I can use it. So I, I Any have... Anytime now. I have two things on that. One, kind of. Yes, it'd be nice <laughs> yeah. to have them in 40k. But there has to be a reason for them to appear. And the reason they appeared in AOS was as a consequence of Marathi doing all of her scheming so that she achieved that ascended godhood. So that's how the Talon and the voice of Slanesh came into being as a consequence of her actions. So we would need something equivalent to happen in 40k for them to appear. I'm not mad if it happens. Like I, I would like it because it would be cool to use them as... Um, you know, big it's just, pieces for yeah. enemies. Just if they if they just appeared in the book as like, hey, look, Sinessa and Dexessa are here. Oh yeah, why? Uh, they just sort of are. Oh, they've always been here. Oh, have they? Cool. <laughs> um, if we have, for example, I don't know, Prince Uriel gets 
flattened by some Slaneshi demons or something, and or you know, just something happens. Yeah, um, probably probably something but, involving your brain. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, your brain eats the wrong soul, and it's all been a trick, and um, you know this, that, and the other. Like that, that'd be cool. But there has to be a reason for it to happen. Like de- demons are a really funny one because I think. Well, the thing I worry about is that they are going to get new models, and I don't think they're going to replace any of the old ones because they don't need to. Quite frankly, no, they don't. They don't need Plus to. I agree. That. They don't need. They're, they're not number one priority for me. The thing that I worry about for um, 40k is 40k has very few 40k demons. They are mm. all. They all come in AOS boxes. You've basically um, just got the Soul Grinder. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And what I worry is that we're gonna get. Hmm, how do we? Uh, how do we balance demons in an edition where it's shooting all the time? <laughs> yeah. uh, let's let's make some let's make some demons that carry guns. Um, and I mean, uh, we'll make them really good. Uh, I, I, <laughs> and, uh, I, I do think it's telling that um, that Vashtor has been sort of categorised as a Chaos Space Marine character you know, like a data sheet like that's where he lives he doesn't live yeah. in the demon codex despite the fact that's what he is he's a demon he's not a demon prince he is a demon you know like he yeah he's not affiliated with the space marine legions he is just an agent of chaos that you know um follows the whims of his you know his own desires he's not burdened by being tied to any of the gods but mm. I, I get that rules-wise, mechanically, it's because um, his whole deal is meant to be basically the Dark Mechanicum, who obviously don't really exist yet, you know, as a standalone army. So the closest Any time now, is... I read on the internet, next weekend they're going to be revealed. Along with that <laughs> always... Thunderhawk being ridden by yeah. a lion. Exactly. Any time always now. next week. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I get that the demon engines are the most concrete thing for him to be associated with, and they mostly exist in the Chaos Space Marine Codex. So I get it, yeah. but that is telling in itself, I feel, that he's not in the Demon Codex when he's a, ultimately he's a demon, and that's what he is. Yeah. It's going to be, it's very, I think it's a very going to be a very interesting time for demons as we go forward. Um, yeah. Because they have promised us that every 40k army is getting new models. That's what they said at Warhammer Fest. They put up the roadmap and they went, here's all the next few codexes and all of these codexes will be getting new models. Some will be getting more than others and some will be getting one, maybe. Yeah, um, and the Admet get one long stilty boy. Yep, the Admet get yeah. their one long stilty boy. The uh, um, <laughs> the fisherman. Um, yeah. well, you know it's good when they mention in the article that the model itself is divisive in the studio. I was very, very surprised to read that. I did not know they put that in, in the article. They described it as they described it as Marmite, and I was like, oh. Oh. <laughs> Mucho's interesting. That's surprising. Well, um, I, I yeah, look forward no, I, to our Demon Codex getting our one model release of here is Sodeshi Demon on stilts. <laughs> <laughs> There's a theme a, with this edition. Here is a corn demon with a gun on stilts. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take ten. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so it's interesting times ahead, I think it's it's fair to say. Um, but speaking of um, you know, game mechanics and how we expect things to um, change in the future as we go forwards, perhaps it's time we, uh, we move on to talking about our main topic for tonight, which is, of course, what we would be changing about 40k tournaments, if we could and if we mm. think we should. <laughs> because... I'll um I'll let you lead this off, Josh. Because whether you can remember the particulars or not, would you care to uh, uh, recount for us perhaps your original um, beef with the, uh, the the tournament scene that you uh, talked about on the conclave uh, earlier this year? Wayne's um, old flashback. <laughs> I don't. I don't fully remember exactly what I said. I know. I know it was. Um... I know it was cross. Um, <laughs> I, I know there was talk about uh, the same two Primarchs always fighting over L-shaped ruins in the same hab block all across the galaxy all the time. Yes. 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 Oh, God. Um, I missed that Black yeah. Library book. So... <laughs> it was called The Damnation of so... Pyrophos, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly the one. Um, we'll count the jabs at Damnation throughout the uh, episode. Put a, put a jabs counter on. Um, yep. Look, the 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 thing for me was that um, I think I think going to a tournament should should be considered the pinnacle of uh, your playing experience, regardless of what type of tournament you're going to, whether it's a narrative based thing or um, you know a, a big you know, a big Titan scrap or uh, a competitive uh, tournament, a team tournament, doubles tournament, whatever type of tournament, that should be the pinnacle of um, of what you're playing, right? There, there shouldn't really be anything, there shouldn't be any experience that isn't that, that is considered to be the tip-top experience of hmm. playing I, I agree. Right. It's, it's it's an aspirational scenario to be in, isn't it? It's like there's that yeah. element of pageantry of the event of being there, bringing your army, committing to being involved in you know a day or two's worth of gaming with other like-minded players who are there to also engage with this hobby at this level and you know in this way that is like you say essentially meant to be like the pinnacle of the experience. Yeah, and I think that. What has certainly happened from my experience of the competitive scene in ninth edition and eighth edition is this kind of standardized codexified version of that playing experience. And yeah, so we will use the same terrain map or the same two terrain maps for a little bit of variation. All steady on. Uh, across How five exciting. games, yeah. So you use one terrain map three times and the other terrain map two times. Um, and the terrain we will we will fight on are all L-shaped ruins. There will be no variation because uh, Games Workshop made the terrain rules slightly too complex in uh, Ninth Edition to overcompensate for the far too um, simple. Uh, terrain rules of 8th edition um, they kind of went too far the other way so 
everyone just went, cool, we're just going to do L-shaped ruins. That's it. Um, and, and if you're lucky, it might be the same intact hab blocks uh, that everybody's <laughs> fighting in across the galaxy. And then at a certain point, it's like, okay, well, that's pretty dull because there's no, there's no tactical. You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to uh, think on your feet to deal with that situation at all because you know what it's going to be. If, if, if you download the pack, you know what terrain you're going to be playing on, which dictates how you build your army, which dictates how you're going to move through the map, and you're taking so much out of the skill of the game by doing that and i've heard people say like you know check that the rules for chess have been the same for a thousand years like and yes that is true but every opponent is different um so check everybody recognizes that there's not much one uniform way to play and win at chess whereas if you tried to win at chess by the way that you spent ninth edition winning at 40k of if you moved your pawns all of your pawns two spaces forward and then you collected 60 points <laughs> because 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 the white pieces get to do that but the black pieces um they they only score points by killing pawns do, do you know what i mean yeah. so like that there's a problem so that was why that's why i think there needs to be then there needs to be, in my opinion, and I know it is not shared by the tournament scene, because the tournament scene doesn't like variation. They don't like variables. They like to they like to take this game of chance that we all like and remove dice entirely from it. Um, if they could, it would all just be a case of we'll just we'll just uh, use probability and um, and and maps to decide the winner. And I've had people in at games say to me, uh, statistically, that model dies, so do you want to just remove it? And I've gone, nope. <laughs> that's, that's not what's <laughs> yeah, happening. I, I can do that at home. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, yeah, and I agree. I, I had this experience recently where um, I know, like, like you say in those examples, on paper, you know the math hammer where if X unit charges into you know y unit you know which one's going to come out of that fight you know and which one's going to be alive and but the amount of times that in games it's when you have that straggler or that unit just doesn't die in the one round of combat and it takes two rounds of combats to die that that's what shifts the line of play to give the opportunity for one player or the other to capitalize on scoring an extra five or ten points of primary that round because the variance didn't let it go to plan and then it's how the other player then comes in and swings that to their advantage um best and... example i can give of that was playing against custodies in ninth edition with my demons before the demons book came out but bellacore had been out for a very for a short amount of time the codex yeah. custodies codex had come out uh, and, and everyone was raving about how good it was because it was very very good I had opponents opponents say to me, statistically, these six uh, Virtus Praetors with their melted missiles removes Bellacor, so do you want to just pick him up? And I said, no. And guess <laughs> what? Guess what happened? He didn't. He took one wound. Because I yeah. rolled saves like a demon. 
And I was just like, cool, so what was that about removing the centerpiece of my army because statistically it should go? No, come on. Um, And so, like, the the point I the point I make is that I would I would make is that I think that as the game has gotten more competitive and as the more the core rule set has gotten more competitive the flavor of the game at played at that level has all but disappeared and yep. that to me is I don't want to say a disaster but it is a bit of a disaster um, especially when what we will see for the next three years, well, next year and a half, as the codexes come out, you will see all of the tournament results generally be like a month or two after a codex. Who was in the top ten? Oh, it was it was it was nine. It was nine. Uh, let's say it was nine demons players and one Eldari player. So the terrain doesn't vary, the scenarios don't vary, and the armies don't vary either. Yeah. At what point are you exploiting the vast richness of the game? Yeah. And me and Chris were talking about this briefly before we sort of started recording tonight, and basically we were saying that it got to a point in you know the back end of ninth edition, arguably a little bit now in tenth, where if you two players who are you know well versed in the competitive game and the current meta and all the rest of it they could look at two army lists they could look at the mission and they could look at what the scoring is going to be especially in the ninth edition version where you had the set secondaries mm-hmm. and those two players could probably accurately predict what the final score of the game was going to be within maybe about 10 victory points, you know, one way or the other. And it would be gaining those 5 or 10 victory points in your favour is where the generalmanship came in. You know, or the dice just threw it one way or the other. Because the 90% of the score is almost predetermined. And it's just manipulating that 10% that gives you the actual results. But then nine out of ten times that ten percent is going to be manipulated the way that you anticipate it to be which is why you end up with the like you say the eight out of ten aldari players in the top ten and so on with the same list pretty much yeah yeah and 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 the and the person the, the the outlier is generally finishes second or third and it's because they took an army where they they applied their brain and they took an army that specifically countered the 90% of the strong army that was there and as you go well that that person there the person who's come third is clearly the best general <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it's like well how do we hear more from that individual you know like that cuz that person that person used their talent at the game to win the game mm. and, and and that to me is the most impressive thing and like look I'm, I I don't I don't think that they're the, the the tournament scene is is awful I just think it's not for me anymore and that is where I get a little bit sad because I have to redefine what the pinnacle of playing is for me 
Yeah, and I agree completely. Like the same, I I don't want to, you know, be down on the tournament scene for what it is. You know, like I get that. Like I understand its purpose, and it is there, obviously for the majority of players who do enjoy. You know, the, the majority of attendees. That is what they're signing up for, and they want to, you know, enjoy and have have a good time with. But curiously, then for us, perhaps tonight we're going to ask that question: like, what would we? change or like to see that would perhaps entice us to be you know more involved or go to an event like this or do we feel adds back in that sense of flavor that's missing and i don't know if either of um, you two have any ideas off the top of your head is there any key things you'd like to see different so i've i've floated this as an idea and there are benefits and there are drawbacks to it but I would suggest um, one that there needs to be a greater breadth of uh, mission scenarios. Yeah. Two that those mission scenarios need to be much more heavily weighted towards the primary. Yeah, and that the primary shouldn't be like kill stuff. Like, it can be on a couple of them, but most of them it should be like get a character to do this type thing. Um, and as a consequence of having more missions in the pack, in the as a possibility for the mission pack, uh, what you then introduce is you introduce a random element to determining which mission is being played at the tournament. So you basically randomly determine it each round. So that way, you can't build your list for six missions that are all about scoring secondaries. <laughs> yeah, because the game I cannot stress this enough the game is way more fun if you don't know what's coming if you know what's coming the game is not fun you're not you're not you're not playing the game you're, you're not playing the game of Warhammer you're not playing uh, real-time strategy you're not playing command and conquer you're not you're not playing any of those things that maybe is one of the things that appeals to you. What you're doing is you're playing the averages, and that's that's not playing Warhammer. That's just, and it's, and it's not playing your specific opponent. And it's not playing the scenario. If you know that the first the first mission is going to be a uh, take one, hold more, uh, and that there's three objectives right next to you, and that on that same terrain map there's going to be a large L here and a large L there and a large L there for you to stand behind. What you will do is you will build your army to do that. And if you know that you're going to do that five times across a weekend, that is what you will do. Uh, so that's, and I'm not saying that there's not a certain level of skill to that, but in the day and age where um, I can go on the internet and go, what's a good 2,000 point army? And I can find one that somebody went um, four and one at, the, at a GT Um uh, with that specific list, doing that specific thing that I think I'm the only person who's figured out how to do, I can just replicate that. Um, and if I know how to play that, then I know how to play that. And, I, and again, I'm not playing the game of Warhammer. I'm playing the averages. I'm, pl I'm, I'm, I'm playing everything but the actual game of Toy Soldiers. Um, and that's what that's what needs to change. Because there is the people I think who won tournaments in eighth edition, I would say, and seventh and sixth and fifth. Yes, there's a degree of there were 
um, you know, really horrible things that were present in the in the in the game, and that was based mostly on the models. So particularly in seventh, <laughs> when it came to things like the um, detachments um, or the formations, I think that was what they called. You know, like the Necron Decurion and things like that, and Gladius Strike Force for the Space Marines, giving you free transports in a one thousand seven hundred and fifty point army. You were turning up with a two and a half thousand point army. <laughs> Simpler times. Yeah, simpler times, right? <laughs> but um, that sort of thing, I'm not saying, you know, that was better. There, there was obviously problems with that. But when you saw the results of, I don't know, like the LVO or whatever, and it, and you saw back in 7th edition maybe something like Drakari came second or third, you would be like, holy crap, that person played way outside of what that army is typically capable of, especially against the field at which it was being... Uh, having to face whereas now particularly in ninth a little bit in tenth as well tenth is too young really to say that the tournament scene is busted but ninth and tenth it's like when it, when i see the tournament results i'm like yep yeah, of course makes sense and i just move on like i i, I don't go oh i want oh that's interesting chaos space marines won again yeah i wonder I mean... how they did that <laughs> I mean, I think the way to say implement that then in the current tenth edition environment would be, I assume most like mission packs these days are saying we're going to be using this configuration of the um, Leviathan deck. You know, so like game one will be this deployment, this mission, this twist, or whatever. Um, and game two will be X Y Z, and so on. Whereas instead just have an event organizer physically draw the three components of the mission each round at random and discard yep. them once they've been drawn that round. Yep. hundred percent agree. hundred <laughs> percent agree. And that, and that would just, that, that would immediately throw so many lists into disarray because, because you'd be like, well, I can't, I can't plan for which one it might never, those missions that I like to play with in this way, they might not they might not at all come up which is why i'm saying like there needs to be 24 missions in the pack which is a lot of work for, for games workshop to do it, it is a lot of work but 24 different missions giving you loads of possibility of loads of different things you now need to build a balanced army right to take on a multitude of other things where you have to play your opponent not you have to play your opponent and the mission, not play your mission and maybe there's an opponent. So it's absolutely agree there needs to be more random variables thrown into events to keep it spicy because as you've said, like it's easy for me to come up with this mega optimized list, know what the general missions are, know what the map layouts are and think, awesome, provided this happens, I'm going to do fine. Um, I think it pushes the more skillful element, it pushes the more kind of list writing variables where you'd like cool i need to think about this if i draw like this scenario or this mission or this layout just to try and keep things a spicy because you want to go and enjoy the games you don't want to play the same three missions over the same over the three different events over six months um but on top of that i think it's about managing expectations and that's easy for me to say who's not really a massively competitive player but like, at the end of the day, you're rocking up to a, ga a game where you roll dice to determine the results of toy soldiers. So, if 
you're enjoying winning games in a competitive format, amazing, that's great, have a damn good time with it. At the same time, count for the variables. Some of the best games you'll have are where the absolutely out of the ordinary happens. That, uh, what was he? He was a space wolf, um, wolf priest in 7th edition, rolling 22 up saves to stay on the objective to then win me the game. Yeah. Like, it's those moments you live for. It's so easy to just go, right, I'll take this as an optimized list for an alpha strike and delete most of my opponent's ar- army off the table. Boom, boom, shake the room, that'll do. Um, but again, it's, I feel like it might be, because I appreciate, I said to Tony before we started recording, back in the days of 6th and 7th, the amount of input from Games Workshop in erratas and game updates and stuff like that was minuscule. You might have got an FAQ once every other year. Nobody enjoyed that. We now get three or four a year, if if not more. Yeah. So it's a case of them, cool, awesome, this is the feedback we've got, let's try this. For a lot of people, it's too much. For the competitive players, they don't mind it because they want to keep up to date with what's hot, what's not, what's going to help them do what they need to do. And that's absolutely fine. But with that becomes the managing of your expectations that the scene will change um, and appreciate what you've got for what you're expecting from a competitive event. Alongside that, it's um, interesting how running events by TOs and stuff like that, how much they incorporate from Games Workshop. Like Tony was saying, if they then want to think, okay, cool, we're going to try this for this event and see how it works out. And then their players react well to that. Amazing, set the example. Design submissions, think of a rule set. I ran a heresy event recently where we said tabling doesn't win. You accrue point objectives from your objectives. If you table your opponent without capturing so much of a single objective, you ain't going to win. And the immediate impact of that was people started playing to the missions a lot more, even though it wasn't a competitive or even overtly a narrative event. The missions were a narrative, but we kept the base game around matched play and how that works. So again, it's trying to keep things interesting for players without it. As you said, Josh, turning up, knowing what the lists are going to be, knowing what the missions are going to be, knowing what the layout's going to be. At that point, it's, you know, watch, see what happens. Oh, I knew that would happen. I'll go home for the weekend. Mm. Yeah. Because I've heard, I've, I've had some tales of, it was uh, the only thing I've, only time I've ever heard it as well, ninth edition, of people turning up day one, win their first one, win their second one, lose their third one, don't bother going the next day. Yeah, I've I've heard and seen cases of that, and it blows my mind. And I'm like, why would you do that? And it's like, well, you know, I I, I lost the third game, so I can't I can't win the tournament now, so there's no point going. I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I, I, I sympathise with that, I, I get that, um, but that that speaks to me of an attitude of not. I'm going to go to win because that's fine. I I think everybody who goes to a tournament thinks that at some point, and you absolutely should. Mm. You shouldn't go thinking, I'm definitely not going to win this tournament. I think everybody goes. And before the first dice is rolled, you go, I've got a good chance here. I think I I could do it. I think this will be my time. And I think you should absolutely have that as an attitude. And I think people should just be honest about that because some people are like, no, no, I never expect to win. It's like, well, why go then? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you know, like is it is it that the key is to not have that be the only thing you want to get out of the experience? I think so, and and I think you know, again, absolutely fine to have that attitude, but you sh- 
if you lose one of those games and then just start decide, oh well, that's me out. I'm done. Bye. It's because you didn't you didn't at any point think you were gonna gonna win. You convinced yourself you definitely were going to, and then the maths didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. And and okay, fine. If if that's if that's if that's your attitude, absolutely fine. I, I'm not criticizing people for that but it's only in ninth edition where i have seen that happen uh and you know ninth edition and since i never saw it happen on eighth i saw one i find it gone i find it interesting that there is and again the support is there from games workshop for these competitive events with the meta watch and the regular updates and the data slates miniature and field manuals so the support is there and there's clearly a marketed emphasis on it but when you think about the size of the competitive scene in relation to the amount of people who actually buy Warhammer, it's going to be a percentage, if that... Because let's face it, a lot of people oh, dare small. say dare say we're all victims of it, go in, buy a box of models, and sit and look at the box on the shelf for it. How long has that been there? Easily five years. Yeah. So, and again, when we go onto the social media, we hear about these infamous stories, these notorious cheaters, these weighted dice winding up in the toilet somewhere. Uh, and how much of it is becoming a focus of the game that we're being exposed to compared to how much of it is actually what everyone aspires to be in terms of playing Warhammer 40,000 and aspiring to be a tournament player? Like, how does it reflect in a player base in regards to the competitive scene? And then you get those attitudes, like you say, Josh, and I've seen it. One game one, one game two, one game, uh, last game three, call them going home. And it just seems like such a shame. Mm. Yeah, it is a, it's a, I mean, I've, how long have you guys done Warhammer? Too long. Yeah, I, I, I'm on 25 plus years now. Yeah, same. Yeah, okay. 20-ish. Yeah, so, so we have we have a very different attitude to people who've been in it for five. Uh, yeah, and I, I totally get that. <laughs> so, so we're just like, this isn't the game I know. Uh, <laughs> a, lot of people, a lot of people are like... Go home, you I old think, man yells at Cloud. See, I, I, I often feel that like my side of that attitude is more not that this is not what I remember, more this is not what I know this game can be. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like it's I, I I more lament the the lack of representation for what this game can be beyond what the majority of it is seen to be. Yeah. Um and yeah, like <laughs> to, to your point about um, mechanically in these events, like scoring in game, one thing that I think the advent of the ITC formats, then evolving into eighth and ninth and so on, has caused is this growth of the progressive objectives being the only kind of scoring you get in most missions now. And I think one of the things that's really lacking. And should be more often um, appearing in mission scoring is more end game scoring missions where there's a larger weight of the primary score based on having control of x objectives at the end of turn five not mm. did you hold it for the majority of turns one two and three um because that's the sort of thing where you don't end up by turn three having a foregone conclusion where you're like well i'm 30 points ahead and you don't have the opportunity to catch up now um, yeah. and where 
pre-planned strategies get to the point where, well, I just need to be ahead in the score for 60% of the game and I'll win. It doesn't matter if I have anything left on the table or not at the end. Yeah. Or it doesn't matter if I've killed 90% of my opponent's army. If the 10% is the 10% holding the primary objective <laughs> and then your yeah. opponent still wins. Um, and that in itself, I think, has been a, um, a symptom of no, sorry, not a symptom. The way around. Um, I think progressive scoring and less endgame scoring has resulted in a lot more of the death of verticality in terrain on the table. Interesting hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, I think you're probably spot spot on there. Yeah, because the way that I've seen this play out now is because progressive scoring requires players to be on the objectives every turn of the game, like every battle round, there's no incentive or scenario where you can spend two to three turns of the game getting units to a key objective when it's up high on you know taller terrain or on the top floor of a building or something like that. Because by the time you get to it, it's only worth five victory points in round five because you've only held it for one turn. Yeah. And that's it's made the game play a lot more like a 2D board game. It's just moving point your models from point A to point B because you have to be on point B for four to five turns of the game. And but again, that harkens back to maybe what Josh was saying about simplifying the rules around terrain and stuff like that to ensure objectives can't be misinterpreted to nullify any of that not to but, use the term idiot proof <laughs> yeah but it doesn't have to be complex terrain the terrain itself could have no mechanical rules other than the fact that it's yeah. 10 inches tall and you have to cover those 10 inches of distance to be stood on the objective and it blocks line of sight yeah, yeah. Um, and that then compounds into the idea that I think you there's less value placed on units that have mobility over killing power. Because mm. in a game where progressive objectives are the, are the norm, it's more important to be able to take objectives off the opponent that are only 10 to 12 inches away than it is to have units that are capable of using fly moves or teleports or redeploys to get to the hard-to-reach objectives, because there mm. are no hard-to-reach objectives. Like It's just about clearing the opponent off them, whereas actually, if you could have your jump units or your jet bikes, their value is the fact that they can get to something that the Space Marine Crusader squad can't, because it's going to spend all game slogging it to get there. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's why the, the things that we've seen do well traditionally, recently, uh, and, and in ninth, is you have something that can do an action, hold an objective, and out of line of sight firepower. Because all you do is you, you capture your three, and then you just sling shells over the top. And that's, that's it. That, that is all you are wanting to do in that game. And as long as your opponent doesn't have exactly the same army, you will win. Because they yeah. can't see you to shoot you, and they haven't got the speed to get to you. So instead, what they do is they camp out on their three and hope that their out of line of sight shooting is stronger than yours. And in some cases, that absolutely is what happened. Yeah, and then 
by comparison, that wouldn't be a viable strategy if your out of line of sight shooting stuff isn't capable of killing all four or five things that the opponent has that can get to that end game objective marker. Yeah. Like they just don't have enough indirect to take out to make sure you've got nothing that can get to that marker while they're busy mm. sat behind their walls guarding their two objectives that they have. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's like this it's like this aversion to the game devolving into a brawl in the middle. Which I don't hate. I I, I like the brawl in the middle. I I think two two armies clashing in the middle of the table together. It's it can be really, really fun. Yep. Um, but when you have games where that never is even a possibility, I think you've got a problem. So that covers a few different ideas about um, like scoring and you know ways you could change up the missions themselves. But how about the idea of what's actually on the table? A bit more about the terrain. So, for example, um, one thing that I again sort of like lament the lack of is more asymmetrical terrain like I don't like the mirrored terrain concept because as you sort of said earlier Josh it's it's taking the variance out of the game I I don't like the fact that the effectively the roll off to choose deployment zone is meaningless yep yeah it is because I've, I've, the only time I have swapped was because my opponent was really grumpy and I wanted his chair. <laughs> so and I, and I was like, either you cheer up or I'm taking your chair. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, we're here to have fun. Like, come on, let's 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 be let's be mates and play this game of Warhammer. And that my opponent just was not interested in having a good time. My opponent was interested in scowling throughout the whole thing so he was like cool uh, so I guess we'll just roll for uh, whoever gets set up as a... no we rolled to see who... we rolled to see sides and he went yeah but you'll pick that one I, like, I don't know maybe I'll pick that one yeah innit it's a nice chair you got there be a shame if someone rolled a six <laughs> exactly <laughs> so you know it, you're right that the the roll to see who goes on which side utterly meaningless other than uh, <laughs> other than maybe you're closer to the toilet yeah, close to the bar. Yeah. When not robbing bombs with the dude behind you. Yeah. When yeah, funnily enough, like placement of units and use of the terrain and the surrounding environment is one of the core fundamentals of what you would call actual warfare. You know, yeah. <laughs> like th there should I personally think there should be the opportunity to look at a table and a terrain setup and think which side would be more adventurous for my army and my units to deploy on. And mm. if you have been, and that skill being able to identify that adds to this level of generalmanship and player ability that isn't represented otherwise. And if and conversely, if you lose that roll off and end up on the side you didn't want to be on, being able to play your way out of that situation and deal with the resources and the scenario you find yourself in. You know, that is a, if you can do that, that is a better show of player skill than just knowing 
how best to position your things on the predetermined map that you've been studying for weeks before the event. Mm. This is why I think Zone Mortalis is the best um, best indicator of general skill because there is no possibility whatsoever of any line of sight at the beginning of the game. So like in a in, I've seen a few good zone mortalis setups where it's basically like two empty warehouses at either end which you set your armies up in and then the inside of it is um but like a maze, right? So what yep. you then as the general have to do is set up firing lanes but also ways for you to advance and counter and um set traps and uh this that and the other for your opponent to deal with. So from my perspective, yeah asymmetric terrain would be excellent what you want, what you should see is the middle of the board be stacked with line of sight blocking stuff and that the deployment zones have um, things like, you know, trees <laughs> like we never see you never you didn't see a single tree for the whole of ninth edition, it was all <laughs> like, it, there was there was craters for a bit and then everyone was like, no, nah, craters, are, they're just slowing the game down, let's, re let's, let's uh, replace those with L's um, it's like, okay, cool. So everything's line of sight blocking. Everything's exactly the same. There's no, there's nothing I have to consider here. The only thing I have to consider is how I drive my tanks out of my deployment zone. That's based hmm. on based on where I place them and where my opponent places them. Um, if indeed you have any tanks at all, because in ninth edition, as we famously know, tanks were not in vogue until the Rogal Dawn came along for all of about six months. Um, so. <laughs> You know, it it's it's it is so. It, it to me, it's really weird when, and I, obviously, having played in those events, I did the same thing. To have your entire army hiding behind one large L in the middle of your uh, board edge because you don't want to get shot. It just looks so dumb. <laughs> yeah, it does. Like the, the the deployment of armies in in Warhammer 40k looks absolutely stupid, and it, you see it like whenever somebody shares a photo, shares photos on Instagram of just about to play game one, wish me luck, and I'm like, I can't see any models. Where are all the models? Oh right, they're all hiding in that L, and your opponents, uh, your opponents' models are all hiding in that L. I would guess. Oh yeah, look there it goes. Turn two and the armies are on the move. It's like what's evil yeah. come out from your hut. <laughs> it's like the old game tanks where you've got to shoot shells over hills to hit your opponent's tank. Only with forty k, you don't even need to see them just to be able to shoot them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and again, it's this bizarre fascination where people are so quick to jump on what's new and how the meta shifts and FAQs, and again, welcoming these kind of event approved tournament packs and mission packs and stuff like that and it just goes so quick um and i commend people whose enjoyment is going to these events developing their skills winning the games getting the trophies amazing go and have a good time but uh a i'm not very good at the game and b it's a very visual aesthetic thing for me i like nice armies spread about across the board i like space marines stood in buildings looking cool but uh yeah, I also find you can always tell when someone's mathing the game out over the next three turns in front of you because normally they've got the tape measure in their mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the reasons I really love seeing Age of Sigmar 
Well, again, completely different to 40k. Whenever I see someone say, oh, just about to play game one of this Age of Sigmar tournament I'm at, and you see all these shield walls lining up between the ruins and this, that, and the other, and you're just like, I'm just sat there, and I look at those pictures, and I go, see, that looks like a game where two armies are about to clash on the tabletop. Sigmar has its own problems in the form of battle line if, right? Because, you yeah. know, there's, there's things like... Uh, the one I always point to is um, second edition Gristle Gore for yes, the yeah. Courts because you know it has its problems. I'm not saying it's a perfect game at all. Um, and Sigma, I think, could do with actually dialing back a few of those battle line if requirements so much so yeah. that you don't see all of these all monsters all the time. Uh, yeah, take so and so as your general, and then you can take all these dragons as battle line. Yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, and like. You know, because it becomes battle line, it no longer adheres to the behemoth requirement. But I feel like it should still keep the behemoth or monster requirement. So yeah, yes, you can take the dragons as your battle line. Fine. So you can take Ionis Cryptborn, and then you can put um, two two units of Storm Drake Guard. But that's your lot. Yeah, you've got to fill the rest of it out with troops. That yes. that's absolutely fine. I'm so into that. Anyway, the thing for Sigma for me is it looks like it looks like two armies lining up and that's why i'm so excited about legions imperialis as well because that is going to look like two armies lining up on the tabletop it's amazing how i said this in the video i did how as i get older the smaller models really appeal to me again legions imperialis more than anything aesthetically ticks every single one of my boxes and the can. same for it you mentioned it, it's the same with heresy it's very rare you see heresy although it is quote unquote the same as 40k yeah um you don't see similar deployments in terms of everyone castling up behind buildings with heresy yeah yeah it's interesting how three companies three games made by the same company with the three same well with two or three same studios all have such different approaches and play styles yeah and they all just from an external point of view, look completely different as well. Like if I yeah. was to, if we, you're in your absolute spot on that heresy again. Every picture I see, you don't see it. You don't see somebody having crammed, I don't know, sixty tactical legionaries behind a single L-shaped building. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the all of the tanks are crammed behind another one. You you don't see that because generally with the armies that you're playing in things like heresy they're too big to do that um yeah. whereas with 40k because there's no well and, and i think this will then lead into another point around tournament play is that it's all well and good to have a um kind of detachment focus of you can take one... The minimum you have to take is one character. The rest of it, go nuts. Yeah. What you then take is the most points-efficient thing, which generally means you're taking the most points-efficient, tough, and lethal thing, which then means your armies are going to be a lot less. You don't have to find space for 30 tactical space marines because you don't have to take them. There's, there's absolutely yeah. no reason to take them. What you can just do is take 15 desolators... And that's quite easy to hide. Yes. Um, so, you know, whereas, again, if we've all got 20 years plus experience, my understanding of it was, okay, so two troops, one HQ, yeah? 40k? Yeah. 
yeah? So you think, right, I've got to take two troops, one HQ. My troops are okay, but they're not very tough, so I need to make them a little bit tougher. Do you know what? I'll throw in a couple of transports. So you then have, instead of two troops and one HQ, what you've got is you've got your Space Marine Captain, and you've got your 20 Tactical Marines. They're all sitting in two Rhinos and a Razorback because you take some command, a command squad or something for yep. the... Uh, for the captain to attach to and at that point you've already spent five or six hundred points of your army yep and then, and you've, then got you've got to have a dreadnought because dreadnoughts are badass gotta have a dreadnought because <laughs> dreadnoughts are badass maybe two dreadnoughts who knows yeah um, if you want to be known as that guy absolutely yeah like, pretty much every orc army that i've ever written from most editions is like right three uh, units of orc boys that's the core now yep. in Typically, most editions, that'll be 20 to 30 man mobs. Like right now, the core of my 10th edition armies is three units of 20 boys. That's my starting point. You know, that's 60 bodies on the table. The last semi competitive event I went to, pre, probably just post COVID, I took an orc mob, I took three Death Dreads and about 80 orc boys, Mega Nobs, and a big boss. And mm. uh, it was great because there were people that, oh, it looks like a really good army. It's like aesthetically, it's like, yeah, list wise, I don't think it's going to do very well. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and then it was fine until they played against it, and they were like, right, cool, I got rid of 20 old boys, there's still 60 left, what do I do? <laughs> uh, I don't get me wrong, I think I won two out of five games, it's probably the best I've ever done at an event. Um, but again, like like you say back, it's fine going to a 30-person event and playing 15 almost identical lists across that. But uh, yeah, it's the, the underdogs and the bonkers list that always tend to get a wink at. Yeah, yeah. Like my so my ninth edition, for the majority of ninth edition, I played demons. In fact, I think for the whole of the ninth edition, I played demons, um, and my blood angels didn't really get a look in uh, because I was playing with an eighth edition book that was pretty good um, by most standards. Even into ninth, it was I thought it was a very competitive book. Most people didn't agree with me, but I did very well with it. But my my army that I used to great effect had a lot of demonettes, not an, an obnoxious amount, but had a lot of demonettes, had 30 blood letters. I think I ran, at one point, 30 demonettes, 30 blood letters, 30 pink horrors, uh, 20 plague bearers. I had that many models in my in my army. Uh, and I had um, a Lord of Change, Bellacore, and I'd throw a Bloodthirster in, and then I also chopped and changed around using things like Seekers, uh, not Seekers, the other one, uh, Fiends. Fiends? Yep, Fiends, uh, but also Screamers of Zinch. I thought Screamers of Zinch were excellent, uh, yep. and I planned to get uh, 9, 18, 20, I planned to get 27, um, but, you know, in rec- then, the, then the ninth book came out, and it went, these are limited to units of six, and I was like, cool! <laughs> Don't have to do that now! Um, same, same for same for things like my demonettes and my blood le- blood letters and all that kind of thing. So these are now limited to units of ten and no more. Uh, can you take uh, than that? So it's like, well, okay, well that that, that screws some of my uh, blocks of ten because I don't have um, heralds and stuff for all of it. Anyway, doesn't matter. Before their book came out, I used to run a big horde. When their book came out, people were very excited about it because it had some real good teeth in it. The very first person I saw playing demons that wasn't me, because nobody else seemed to do that for the majority of that of ninth edition. Very first list I saw: three bloodthirsters, two keepers of secrets. Yep. And I was like, "Where's the troops?" It's like, "Oh, you don't need the troops. This is Arcs of Omen, baby." 
and it was like, oh. <laughs> Ciao. <laughs> so, so cool. That immediately makes my army uncompetitive. I can't, I cannot compete with it. I mean, as a uh, as a demon player, I do think it's a shame that uh, any time I see like a battle report online or list discussion or whatever, it's like demons army list or whatever, and then they go to it and it's like majoritively most lists are three to four greater demons, one of which is yep. typically Bellacore, <laughs> and I'm just like. This doesn't feel like an army. Where's the army? I don't want to just see demon army that is four models. <laughs> yeah. And like, great demons are cool. And I'm so glad that they're good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially they should, in ninth. <laughs> they should be the greater demon. They need something to be comparatively greater than. They can't, yeah. <laughs> just, they can't just be demon. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, I'm great that the daddy of shadows, Mr. Bellacore himself, is also super strong. And I used him I don't think I I don't think I played a game of demons in ninth edition without him. I I I, I, I the moment I because uh, he was the one that inspired the entire collection in the first place. So it was like he has to he has to be in mm. all of them, even if he's even if he's bad. Spoiler alert, he wasn't, he was incredible. But yep. um, you know, I, he had to go into my list. But I didn't run at any point Three blood, three bloodthirsters, three lords of change, three keepers of secrets. I never did that because that was that to me was like. Firstly, I thought when the ninth edition book was going to come, I thought it was going to be like you can have one greater demon per detachment, <laughs> and I was fully prepared for that to happen because um, <laughs> I didn't want to be like I've just I didn't want to be one of those internet memes where you know <laughs> you buy. Shalaxi Hellbane and three keepers of secrets, and then you're mad because the rules changed. <laughs> like you know, it was, it, I mean, for me once. So funnily enough, I used to play with Bellacor, um in my Demon Army back in six and seventh edition. So this mm-hmm. is little itty bitty Demon Prince Bellacor back when he was uh, his original um, um, Warhammer Fantasy release model with the um, Storm of Chaos. <laughs> campaign book. Oh yes, um, yeah, and his so he was slightly downscaled compared to the other standard Demon Prince models at the time because <laughs> he he wasn't <laughs> a, he wasn't a Space Marine who became a demon. He was just a, a human who became a demon, so he wasn't as bulky. Um, yeah. And the funny thing is, technically, if I went and found the correct base size for him, he'd still be a valid model for Bellacor these days. <laughs> Because <laughs> he is the actual Bellacore behind the building. <laughs> yeah, he's the actual Bellacore model. If he's on the right base, I just there's a part of me that was tempted to do it just to see people's reactions. <laughs> that would have been hello, very, little very one. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, this is Bellacore. <laughs> so yeah, this was his. This was his previous model. It's not even like that old. This is just the one before the current one. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think, because this is all still related to what's actually on the table. Hmm. I think, I think, I think the tenth edition list building mechanic is a mistake. I agree. Um, because they keep trying to do this, where they say we want to make every unit in your book viable, but it just isn't. And it never mm. can be, and that's okay. 
you know, because like you know, metas change and that and the other. Like, it's fine that screamers of Zinch aren't the best thing in Zin sliced bread. It's it's okay. I really like the models, so I still have them and I will still continue to use them. But there has to be, there has to be more than one requirement of a HQ model. There just there just has to be because. That is when so many of the problems we're running into and have run into for the last, I'd say, however long since eighth edition, you know, with the you know, the way de- the way detachments were made uh, in eighth, where you were just like, hey, I want to run an outriders army, so I'm just going to take all fast attack. Um, how about Ooh. those out of line of sight shooting orc buggies? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? <laughs> What's the problem here? Let's punish the buggies. No. Let's punish yeah. the way armies are built. It's I, I personally feel like they keep trying to reinvent the wheel with every new edition. Mm. Like they'll say, we're going to do this and try this. And some of it will be good, some of it won't be great. It's like, cool, we're going to try something completely different this time. It's like, or build on the bits that are going well, take the community feedback, play test a little bit more, and build on the base you've got. Like I was I was super excited for eighth because as much as I enjoyed seven, there was a lot I played it for god knows five, six years. Mm. in like sixth to seventh format and when eighth came out i loved how the army building worked out of i could run my gene stealer cult with astra militarum allies with a bane blade i thought that was dead cool it was nice and let me build a thematic list around what i want to do uh and then ninth came around and it was essentially the same like yep cool and then like you were saying josh 10th came out and it's like cool take a hq whatever else you want go for it yeah and again it just is this to cater to writing what they deem a simpler rule set they can manage better with quotation marks or is it we're just going to keep trying new things until people stop buying books yeah but it's almost like if you're playing if you're playing competitively that should be the most regulated part of the game Mm. so like I think the 10th edition list building mechanic is absolutely fine if if, if the three of us wanted to get together to throw dice with whatever the hell we wanted in our collections, great, we can bring valid armies. But if we want to go to a competitive event, that's where there should be limitations to Im- improve that focus on uh, skill versus list. Yeah. Um, so like if it's like hey look for a competitive event here is the force organization chart that's that's how you build your army two mm. troops one hq and then optional two additional hqs uh four additional troops three elites three heavy sports yeah three fast attack and uh what was it it was unlimited de- dedicated transports all that kind of thing yeah. that's how it should be that's absolutely how it should be yeah because Which is then, funny because I still write lists that way, even in tenth edition. I still almost stick to the confines of a force hog. <laughs> I do the same thing. I always go, "How do I? Ooh, how do I? How do I squeeze the most amount of efficiency I can into this list around these thirty <laughs> yeah. thirty space marines I have to put in?" Oh wait, I don't have to. Yeah, I've just well, saved myself six hundred points there. So I suppose one of the ways that they are perhaps artificially introducing this concept back in is with the new detachments in the new codexes because basically if you take anything other than the standard racial detachment 
90% of the elements of that detachment's rules, i.e. its stratagems, its enhancements, all the rest of it, they're all basically key-locked to certain keywords and units. Mm -hmm. And that is kind of your tax. Like, if you want to make use of the stratagems and the enhancements available in the Lightning Assault Space Marine Detachment or whatever, then you have to take units of Outriders, Chaplin on Bike, the ATV, and whatever else, to actually get the benefit of your rules. Mm. And that is kind of like saying if you're going to run this army you have to use these xyz units and not just the entirety of your codex mm. but yes you are correct however i think the codexes that we're getting in the for the tyranids and the space marine ones to me have been incredibly underwhelming because the index detachment still remains to be the one that everybody takes because it's the most flexible mm. yep yeah, I, I, I have said I would say that is the same for the Tyranids like that seems to be the case as well yeah and the 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 problem is is they're doing I I think they've got this I think they've got things a little bit backwards and that they're trying to simplify the game and that's great but 8th edition was pretty simple and the armies that we got by the end of 8th edition there was a lot of I think there was a lot of firepower a lot of teeth all over the field I don't, I, there mm. were some, some armies that were not doing as, as hot as others and there were some that were doing too hot but those are those are balance changes right you know there's a couple of tweaks here and there would have made things pretty good and I think the same thing could be said towards the end of 9th not in terms of the mechanics of the way the game played, but I think the armies, to a point, were reasonably well balanced. I thought what by yeah. the end of it. Um, now, the problem I have had with both the tenth tenth codexes that we've had so far is the detachments that have come out in addition uh, to the index one. So, like the uh, I can't remember what it's called the 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 the, the white scarsy one. Um, the the, uh, the 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 one that's meant for bikes that has its ability that keys off of mounted and it's like great that affects three things in the book yeah and the rest of it doesn't matter so what do I get for my three things in the book I get the ability to is it fall back and charge or advance and charge something like that something so, to that effect so you get that on units that you don't want to be doing that with because they're not as strong as some of the other options you have for doing that in the book. So at that point, you're better off... If you want to take the full Outriders army, you're actually better off still playing in Gladius because you'll get the, you'll get the, you'll get the doctrines. Yeah. There's, there's, no, there's no tangible benefit to doing it. Un, unlike, say, again, to hearken to Sigmar, although it needs to be toned down in Sigmar, if battle line actually meant something in 10th edition, which it doesn't currently, yep. if it meant something, and then the White Scarzy one, which is name we can't remember right now, um, if that one said, hey, Outriders become battle line, there's a tangible benefit to doing it. Mm. 
but 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 there isn't because being able to advance and charge with chainsaws against uh, you know vehicles was great in ninth because it meant you could drown them with uh, attacks and you could probably find ways to buff the strength a little bit to maybe get it to uh, wounding on fives yep. and this that and the other. But when you're strength four and you're going up against vehicles that are toughness twelve, you're 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 not getting that to a five in any way, shape, or form, unless you're finding plus one to wound, which is very hard to. So that encourages you to not play that way. Because there's there's no there's no benefit to doing that unless you'll say, I'm gonna play with my outriders against um my opponent who's playing as Leagues of Votan and they have an entire two thousand point army of Hearthkin warriors. Yeah, it's like the lack of incentive to run these thematic detachments because yes cool we get this we get access to these stratagems and these enhancements that's great but in game it's just kind of there's not a lot of reasons for you to take them if you want to like especially with a competitive mindset be able to do anything with it and i think that's why they've got rid of your high fleets and your chapter rules and stuff like that which i think is a crying shame yeah i think i think yeah i think you're all right um that there was problems I had with um, the thing that we saw in 8th and ninth of being able to do your custom thing where you pick nothing but benefits. Oh, yeah, yeah the, the custom thing I never liked. like. Being able to just pick from the archetypes that exist within the law sub-factions, sure. But the whole custom, custom, custom thing was just... Yeah. It was meant and to spend, be built spending stratagems war. on additional warlord traits and stuff like that. And yeah. you had guys with like two or three warlord traits. It's like, come on, mate. Yeah. It was meant yeah. to be built as the even more narrative option, but like the build your own space marine chapter, build your own craft world sort of thing. But instead, yeah. all, all ever, anyone ever did was build the Obsec dynasty <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so on. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, Which, and, and to be clear, that, that, is, that is not the fault of the players. That is the fault of us as people who are making content. <laughs> nah, we can't take responsibility for that, mate. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm going to hold my hands up right here, and I'm going to say, look, as a content creator, I have a, I have a duty to, 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 to promote the game that I wish to see played. And if I go out there and I make a review of a codex where I say this is clearly the best one, if anybody watches that and then goes, well, they've said it, and tabletop tactics said it and hellstorm wargaming said that and uh liam dempsey said that as well if they've all said the same thing then clearly that's the way to run uh that army that's how they run their army and that, that's not their fault it's just they consumed content to the point of where we all went hey this thing's really good <laughs> so and so they do and that's and that's and that's absolutely fine but then that starts to bleed through into the into the kind of more casual scene, into the local gaming stores, this, that, and the other, which then makes for a much more competitive game. So anybody who's listening right now who says, well, I don't play competitive Warhammer, if you've been crushed by anybody in the last six years, it's because everybody else was playing competitive Warhammer and they didn't realise. So I hold you wholly responsible, Josh. Thank you very much. I, you, I commend you, you for your honesty. You can you can hold me 100% responsible. Yeah, it's... And I keep saying, I keep using the term manager expectations, but I say to everybody, a game is always as good as the people you play it with. Mm -hmm. So my friendship group isn't very competitive. We'll go to like, we make weekend events of going to like Cardiff and narrative heresy events because we just love weekends away and having a good time. 
Mm. Uh, we go to the odd event in the Midlands and stuff like that. That's our jam. If people's jam is literally, I know these are the exact parameters of this event. This is the layout. This is the mission. I've got my list ready. I'm going to win. Amazing. Go and have a good time. If that's your jam, have a fantastic time of it. Um, it's just, yeah, people get this different sense of accomplishment from different aspects of this hobby and fair play. Go and have a bloody good time. Always. Well, just to just to cycle back then quickly to the point about the core detachments for each of the factions and codexes. And maybe this is a thing that will have to evolve more as more codexes come out and we get deeper into the edition. But when you were talking about regulating army choice as part of your mission pack for an event, what do you think, Josh, to the idea of you uh, prohibit the use of the generic one only? So you can't take the Gladius Strike Force, but you can take any others. And at which point then people have to commit to a direction for their army building and everyone is probably going to pick a few different options from the six remaining rather than everyone going for the one universal one. I think it works in principle if there was a consistent quality between all of them. Yeah, okay, so but, maybe you get two or three of them that become the go-to choices instead. Exactly, that, and that's the... Because, like, at the moment, it's so early in the edition that you can't really pass sweeping judgment. And, like, mm. Tyranids, for me, was an interesting one because the Index one is clearly the best one. I think most people will agree on that. Uh, and it's the most flexible, and it's the one most people are used to, anyway, having played with it in the Index, so why bother changing the other ones, the only one that I've seen people be excited about, well, there's two, but the only one I've seen people be really excited about is the Vanguard one, the one that's meant for like Lictors and um, mm. Von Ryan's Leapers and things like that. And it's like, yep, yeah, cool. It's not as competitive as the Index one, though. People have done well with it, but the one that's being taken the most is the Index one. The other one that people have taken is the Synaptic Nexus one, which is the one that's quite similar to the ninth edition thing, uh, where you pick something that happens for a phase, and, yeah. and then it happens if you're within Synapse, um, that one. Um, which, you know, fine. That one's that one's okay. But I'm, I, I, again, I've not seen too much like people enthusing about that. But if that's three from the five or six that are in there, then that means there's a couple that are throwaway. And the same thing that is in the Space Marines one is that on paper, some of them can look good, but then as soon as you immediately pl apply game logic to them, they're awful. They're just, they're <laughs> just, they're just, they're just, they're just not worth the paper that they're printed on. So the best ones in the Space Marine book are, again, Gladius Strike Force, the one from the Index. And then you have the Firestorm Assault one, which is great if you want to move fast because it means every gun has assault so you can advance with everything and shoot with everything which is which is good um, at the moment because speed is what is winning most games which is why Eldar are doing very well and obviously the amount of devastating wounds that are on the on the on the in, in the in the game although it's no longer mortals anyway it doesn't matter uh, speed is what wins you games at the moment because it just always is at the beginning of an edition always yeah. if you think back to the beginning of 8th one of the king lists then was uh, the Razorback uh, twin assault cannon razorback spam uh, because it has the potential to be really fast and it also had the castle thing with Gilliman but before the twin razorback spam it was storm raven gunships because they're really fast because speed is what wins <laughs> early in editions 
Um, it's always is the way. It always is the way. Um, so Gladius is doing really. Gladius is good. Firestorm is good, and um, the Iron Storm one, which lets you re-roll one hit and one wound uh, mm. roll per turn, and you just take that on dreadnoughts, uh, ballistas, dreadnoughts, and things like that. And you've also got like Valiant uh, Gladiator Valiants with their laser destroyers. They're really efficient in in that in that list. Um, otherwise. Raven Guard one's not very good because it's minus one to hit. It's fine, I guess. <laughs> um, but if someone's got the speed to get inside twelve inches, you no longer have any benefits in your army, um, which a lot of people do. Uh, first company strike force, it's not very good at all. Even it, it like first company strike force is excellent if you roll nothing but sixes for a turn. <laughs> Which I feel is true of most attachments. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, like, if you so the, the the build with that is you have Gilliman, which lets you move um, Oath of Moment to another yeah. unit, and so you use their ability to do uh, re-roll hits and wounds because it's the first company for a turn. You use it to kill two main big things using first company uh, strike force. That that's that that's its its only play. If you just roll well and your opponent doesn't roll above average on on saves, um, otherwise from that point on you have no rules, you have no benefits whatsoever to taking that detachment for four out of five turns. So it, it's like that's not great. Uh, <laughs> whereas the re one of the reasons Gladius does so well. You get a benefit for three minimum turns in a game that currently, most times, is decided by the end of turn three. So, you know. How about then, to sort of like wrap up and finish this uh, this discussion for today then, we review quickly the concept of what uh, our idealised alternate version of a 40k tournament would look like. Because given the points we've discussed and talked about, it seems like what we what what we free people here on the podcast tonight would like to enjoy and attend is one an event that potentially um, limits particular choices of detachments or requires certain um, prerequisite units to be included in your army in order to make it feel more like an army and um, look and look like an Aesthetic army. Aesthetic is important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got to look like an army. It's got to look like you're playing with armies. Um, includes um, mission formats where they are generated on the fly from round to round. Even if it is just Leviathan deck drawing the three components of the mission each round. Yep. Has um, tables of non-symmetrical terrain. So, you know, the deployment and table side actually means something, especially if you're also randomly determining what the deployment map is, you know, like the deployment zones um, yep. each round, as we've been doing. Not Dawn of War, Purge the Alien, as it was in 7th constantly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't tell you what I had for breakfast yesterday. I can tell you Dawn of War and Purge the Alien looks like. <laughs> and finally... Um, more weighted scoring towards primary, ideally with some uh, more common examples of end game scoring. Mm. And, and also then... bring back First Strike, Slay the Warlord, and Linebreaker. 
And uh, why, why not throw in uh, CZ Initiative while you're at it? Yes! <laughs> CZ Initiative I do. I miss CZ, you know. I don't understand where it went. Because nothing, miss... nothing starts a game of 40k better than you going, oh, f*** off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, like, like, nothing starts a game of 40k better than being annoyed that you're now no longer going for first. But also, conversely, that beautiful moment of victory when you roll that one chance to get a six and you seize the bloody initiative. Yeah. It puts you on such a high for the next five turns. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Oh, yeah, no, I think all, all of those are very valid points, Tony. It's definitely some... Uh, I've got a Heresy slash Legions Imperialis event in the works that I'm hoping to get sort of for February, and those are all definitely things I'll be thinking about for that. You know what well, else I would like? Go on ticketed entries that are limited per faction uh yeah so for lena yeah, I, I, I i was perhaps gonna sort of skip over this a little bit just as we were getting towards the end of the <laughs> the show but yeah one thing i did have on here as a point was more consideration to factions during pairings and mm. you know even if it's just as simple as um if where possible within the pairings you don't have Imperial versus Imperial games. You don't have Eldar versus Eldar games, and yeah, yes, obviously, understandably, if you're not if you're not doing ticketed entry and you just mm. have people show up with any number of armies um, they want, then yeah, you may end up having some Imperial versus Imperial games. But if your pairings are designed to lean to avoid those matchups where possible, you get more of a cinematic experience. Where if you show up with an Imperial army four out of five of your games will be against non-imperial opponents in an ideal yeah. world, you know? And you actually get to fight the Eldar or the Tyranids or the Chaos Forces or whatever from game to game. Yeah, I mean, it's like ideal world, right? If you're running a heresy event, you ideally want all 18 legions to be there. Yes. <laughs> we were too short on my last one. I was absolutely devastated. <laughs> Which ones are you missing? Oh god, it was Thousand Suns and World Eaters, which is annoying because I'm a huge World Eaters player and I wasn't playing. Thousand Suns surprises me. They were always busted when I used to consider getting <laughs> yeah. into... Uh, yeah, it's one of those where, and frustratingly enough as a baseball player, normally Thousand Suns turn up for one of the best painters, so I was really hoping to see some. Yeah. yeah. Alas, no. Maybe next time. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's, it's the thing that... Have you, have you guys ever done a... Um... Uh, Middle Earth strategy battle games tournament. Adore that game. Not not a tournament, and I haven't played in about fifteen years. But I did love it when I did play it. It's still yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's completely. Uh, this is what's ridiculous about it. Since its inception, it's pretty much completely unchanged. Yeah. It's just uh, like indeed. they're just like we can add things to it, but we're not going to change the core thing because it works brilliantly. It just doesn't but, bloody need it. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the, bl- the blood ball effect. Yeah. Oh, yeah, again. Blood Bowl is another great example. But the thing that MESBG does, I love this, and you can't expect people to do this for a 40k tournament because it would be insane. But the thing that MESBG does for its tournaments is they say, look, to attend, you have to bring a good army and an evil army. Yes. I knew, I knew that. I've heard that in the past that Lord of the Rings, yeah, events, you cause... have to bring one of each side uh, like you have to bring yeah. two armies a good army and an evil yeah because there there are mechanics that impact good versus evil and evil versus good and you won't get that if you have good versus good or evil versus evil yeah and also just like from a narrative spin you don't want good versus good yeah 
and yeah. evil versus evil generally. You just you just want them to. I mean, evil versus evil is more likely, right? Because that's what, what orcs do. But like, good versus good, you don't want you don't want that inevitable thing that will happen where the riders of Rohan face off against the riders of Rohan. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I do want is riders of Rohan and Theoden going to Minas Tirith, going, "Where were you when the Westfold fell, Denethor? You brick." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> alternate history um exactly yeah. exactly but yeah i mean it's like it, it, it just gives from, I, my favorite thing about that is it just means that i know that i'm guaranteed if i go to an event i'm going to take my riders of rohan and i'm gonna play orcs yep or, well not necessarily orcs but i'm gonna play evil i'm going to fight against evil i'm just like cool sign me up yeah whereas if i say say the blood angels codex comes out and it's barnstormingly good and every person dusts off their three smash captains from 8th edition and decides to run a Blood Angels army I don't want to go to a tournament and play five lots of Blood Angels lots of red yeah exactly and like you know I just I I don't want to do that because and that's again very specific to my taste I don't I want to. I want to have a narrative spin on all of my games, so maybe a competitive place isn't for me. Mm. Do you know what Good I mean? Good thing you're here, then, isn't it, mate? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, then. So, yeah, we what what we've decided. What we really want is uh, ticketed factions and CZ initiative. That's all we need to fix for. <laughs> Biggest <laughs> takeaways: I'll get the letter in the post to GW tomorrow. CZ initiative, man. I love CC Initiative. I'm scared of mentioning it to people who play games of 40k and then going, what's that all about? It's like, you've never seized the initiative on an opponent. Jesus, you've not lived. You've not Did lived we? until you... It's like finding a 20 quid note in your pocket you forgot about. It. It's just, <laughs> oh. Especially we... when your entire strategy... Like like I said, I played, I played Blood Angels, right? It's my entire strategy used to revolve around using uh, Full Lord Fury with my death company. So I would yep. deploy them as far forward as I possibly could based on the idea that I was going first. And if I was going second, I was like, I've screwed myself. <laughs> so I have to seize. And then yep. when you get that seize, oh, it's like the stars align. It's like it's like the conjunction of the spheres. Uh, yep. <laughs> get your phone out, text your partner babe I've done it, I've seized the initiative yes dear, very nice <laughs> you don't understand you just don't, you just don't get me <laughs> <laughs> well yeah like you say maybe maybe we'll see it re- return at some point in uh, another mission pack in 10th edition or possibly 11th edition, who knows <laughs> yeah but, we'll um, but yeah um, I want to say uh, thanks again to both of you for coming and joining me tonight. Thank you. Well. Pleasure. It's uh, been a long while and I'm glad to have finally found time to do one. Yes, it's been good having you back on after a while, Chris, because we couldn't we couldn't align schedules, could we? And uh, and thank you, Josh, for coming and joining us for the first time. I'm, uh, I'm sure possibly we might have you on again in the future <laughs> at some point. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. As long as this wasn't too arduous uh, <laughs> a uh, an experience for you, I'll happily come back. No, it was always, always in no way arduous. 
<laughs> that's, what, that's what everyone says until the call hangs up. And then the call hangs up and they go, never talking to that prick again. <laughs> it's when, uh, when you go on Instagram, you see me playing Middle Earth and Blood Bowl. It's like, yeah, he's, he's been turned off 40k proper now. <laughs> uh, I mean, if, you, if you're talking about CZ Initiative, don't get me started on it. It's a complete opposite, which is the fumble turn one in Blood Bowl. <laughs> Oh, honestly, it's. I I the very first game of Blood Bowl I played, I fumbled first turn. Yeah, good. And, and it's a right passage. First, it's what everyone does. Very first game of uh, Necrobunda I ever played, my ganger fell from the top of the uh, walkway and killed itself. I just failed an athletics check or whatever it was called. Yeah, uh, it, it just every every game I've ever started has always done the stupid thing first, and I good. love it. Good. Love it, love it, love it. That's what we need. <laughs> Great. Well, um, yeah, I think I think <laughs> I think that's about everything though for tonight. So uh, yeah, w- one last time, uh, where can people find you both um, online, um, Chris? Uh, find me at the Unrelenting Brush on most things. Instagram is the underscore Unrelenting uh, underscore Brush. Gives a Google, gives a Facebook. Check my website out. Any questions regarding your painting, I'm happy to help if I can. And uh, yourself, Josh? Yeah, you can find me everywhere as Warhipster, youtube.com forward slash Warhipster, instagram.com forward slash Warhipster. Just Google me, it'll come up. Or just like Google Contrast Paint, and I'm pretty much going to be there. Probably. Um, and then, as always, um, you'll find me as Narrative Wargamer on most platforms. You can also here on YouTube or. Um, on Instagram and so on and yeah if you are listening on um, Spotify or other podcast platforms then yeah do check out YouTube because I've got a bunch of other videos on there as well now um, hopefully getting a couple more 10th edition battle reports out in the near future a couple of lore shorts and uh, a few more interesting things in the mix for the near future uh, some some interesting ideas that I'm working on and it's a uh, yeah it's a fun time I'm enjoying producing all this stuff and uh, getting it up there for you guys to go check out so yeah hopefully we'll see you there in the future um so yeah that that's everything tonight guys so we've uh yeah content creation <laughs> yeah we we have for, for the first time ever on the narrative on gamer podcast we've properly sat down and talked about competitive and uh yeah we've uh like i said we've come to the conclusion that it was better with seized initiative <laughs> yep <laughs> Yeah, I don't like. It. Yeah, I've decided I definitely don't like it. That doesn't so, mean I won't play competitive games and turn up with stupid lists to watch my opponent and go, "Well, this would be easy." And I'm like, "Yeah, but look at my orcs. Look at them." <laughs> Do you mind if we roll to seize the initiative just for fun? Yeah, exactly. Let's just roll a dice. So you can roll a six. <laughs> well, I mean, um, the, usually I end the tagline with these shows on um, you know helping you discover more ways to play and perhaps. The biggest takeaway from tonight then is next time you play a game of 40k, just try CZ Initiative. And if you, and if you uh, if you've never heard of it before, never seen it before, uh, it'll be it'll be an experience for you. <laughs> so yeah, until next time, guys. This has been the Narrative Wargamer Podcast, helping you to discover more ways to play 40k.